this is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. Just when New Yorkers thought it was safe to get back on the subway after two years of pandemic-laced fear, a gunman opened fire Tuesday, wounding 29 and turning a rush hour into a violent nightmare for scores of Brooklyn strap hangers. This is an NBC News special report. Here's Lester Holt. Good day, everyone from New York. We're coming on the air with breaking news. At least five people were shot and multiple injured in an attack that took place at a busy subway station this morning in Brooklyn, New York. The shooting happened at the 36th Street station at the height of rush hour. Authorities are looking for a suspect who was seen with a gas mask and an orange construction vest. Right now, there is a massive police response on the scene as they search for the shooter. It's a situation developing rapidly with new information pouring in. We're getting an update right now, we believe, from officials on the scene. Let's take you there. The attack unfolded on a Manhattan-bound N train, arriving at a Sunset Park subway station around 8.30 a.m. Authorities said the suspect put on a gas mask and threw two smoke grenades before firing 33 times with a Glock 17, that's a 9mm handgun, at passengers as the train pulled into the station. Good afternoon. We're here to update New Yorkers about an active shooting incident that took place this morning inside the 36th Street subway station on the N line. I want to begin by assuring the public that there are currently no known explosive devices on our subway trains, and this is not being investigated as an act of terrorism at this time. We can also report that although this was a violent incident, reportedly we have no one with life-threatening injuries as a result of this case. Less than 30 hours later, James was apprehended in New York's East Village after calling Crime Stoppers from McDonald's and turning himself in. This morning, the man police say is responsible for that devastating attack on the New York City subway is waking up behind bars. 62-year-old Frank James taken into custody Wednesday by a swarm of NYPD officers in the city's East Village neighborhood. Now, ABC News has learned James himself called police, telling them where he was and describing what he was wearing, saying he would be in a McDonald's charging his phone when they arrive. With help from Good Samaritans, he was spotted just a few blocks away. We got him, said Mayor Eric Adams, the first official to speak at an afternoon news conference. We got him. My fellow New Yorkers, we got him. We got it. I cannot thank the men and women of the New York City Police Department enough, as well as our federal agents, our state police, our first responders from the 9-11 operators to the various men and women from our medical professions. We got him. It said to New Yorkers, We're going to protect the people of this city and apprehend those who believe they can bring terror to everyday New Yorkers. And I want to thank everyday New Yorkers who called in tips, who responded, who helped those passengers who were injured. 33 shots, but less than 30 hours later, we're able to say, we got it. James was charged in a criminal complaint with committing a terrorist act on a mass transit system. 
Breon S. Peace, the United States Attorney for New York's Eastern District, which brought the charges, said that Mr. James could face life in prison if convicted. What does it mean uh, from a legal perspective for this case to go from a local crime to a federal terrorism case? What we're looking at is a more severe crime that's occurred, and it, what it is, they're trying to do is encompass everything that's happened and ensure that they get this higher charge. This act of terrorism is going to allow for him to be looking at a life sentence. It also allows for each of the individuals to be covered under this act because it's a general act of violence against a particular group of people designed to intimidate and strike fear in them. Federal authorities also located a storage facility in Philadelphia, registered to James, where they recovered a cache of 9mm ammunition, a pistol barrel for the use of a silencer, targets, and an undisclosed amount of 223 caliber ammunition that's used for an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle. According to court documents, James allegedly visited the storage unit the evening before the attack. The 62-year-old rented a U-Haul on April 11th at 2.30 p.m. in Philadelphia. Surveillance video capturing that van crossing the Verrazano Bridge into Brooklyn at approximately 4.11 Tuesday morning. Two hours later, at 6.12 a.m., authorities say surveillance video captured James on a Brooklyn street corner wearing construction clothing, that orange vest described by witnesses along with a backpack and rolling bag. He heads into a nearby subway station to board a Manhattan-bound N-train. Then, at approximately 8.26 a.m., while on board the train, James allegedly releases a gas canister and opens fire. Subway riders spilling onto the platform, some performing life-saving measures. The subway shooting represents a long-feared nightmare scenario for New York City, which relies heavily on its mass transit system. Subway ridership cratered during the COVID pandemic as many workers stayed home and ridership has not returned to its pre-pandemic levels in part due to wariness over an increase in violence on the transit system. Authorities say James bought the 9mm Glock handgun and used in the shooting from a federally licensed firearms dealer in Ohio in 2011. They added that he wouldn't have been able to purchase the gun if he'd had any felony convictions. His arrest history in New York is nine prior arrests dating from 1992 to 1998. Those include possession of burglary tools four times, criminal sex act, theft of service two times. He was arrested on a New Jersey warrant. He also has a criminal tampering. He has three arrests in New Jersey in 1991, 1992, and 2007. They are for trespass, larceny, and disorderly conduct. Federal court documents unsealed Wednesday contained a picture of the firearm recovered by authorities and traced to James, which shows that an attempt was made to remove the serial number sometime before the weapon was discarded. We used every resource at our disposal to gather and process significant evidence that directly links Mr. James to the shooting. We were able to shrink his world quickly. There was nowhere left for him to run. James left behind a trail of YouTube videos that were both violent and fucking disturbing. 
Under the name Prophet of Truth 88, James made videos predicting a race war between black and white people and fantasized about killing people and watching them die in front of him. We don't give a fuck. Could care less. And that's why we should be exterminated. That's why we should be off this fucking planet because we don't give a fuck that the fact that we're doing damage. It's the very thing that gives us life. We have no sense of it and don't want to know shit. Which means you're going to be exterminated. Pray. Pray till your fucking face falls off. Do you not think the Jews who at Auschwitz didn't pray? Do you think the Jews that at Birkenbau didn't pray and pray and pray? Did their God come and save? No, their God. And these are, these are the people, <laughs> supposedly the, the original people of God. Their prayers didn't do nothing for them. Your prayers are not going to do shit for you. When you're sent to your American Auschwitz to be fucking exterminated. In the days leading up to the subway attack, he filmed himself making his way from Philadelphia to New York in a U-Haul, stopping off at a hotel in New Jersey. This is where I'm at, the best western of Bordentown, James said. Here I am, back, back, back in the place where all my troubles started. In a video posted Monday, James spent several minutes saying he does not want to go to fucking prison. And while he wants to kill people, he cannot handle prison. I've been through a lot of shit where I can say I wanted to kill people. I wanted to watch people die right in front of my fucking face immediately. But I thought about the fact that, hey man, I don't want to go to no fucking prison. Fuck that. You know, when I was younger, I'd be like, hey man, I'm not built for no fucking prison. I'm just not. I don't want to be, and then maybe I don't want to be around a bunch of fucking niggas. I want to be around a bunch of niggas now. Leave alone all day, every day, be around a bunch of fucking niggas talking shit and hearing that fucking bullshit all day, playing these fucking prison game. I don't want to deal with that shit. I could go on and on about these videos, and they're fucking insane, but that's besides the point. The story of Frank James is all too familiar. A deeply disturbed man with access to multiple firearms goes on a rampage. It seems that he hid in plain sight for decades. He posted his most violent fantasies on social media and committed multiple violent crimes. But still, this man was able to buy automatic weapons. Now that the manhunt has ended and Jane sits behind bars, we will face the inevitable politicization of this awful shooting. For years, this freak was letting the world know his deepest, darkest thoughts and big tech never flagged it. They consider themselves the speech police of what's right and wrong to post. Saying gender is real is considered hate speech online, but kill whitey is just fine. The GOP will use this shooting as an opportunity to forward the narrative that America's cities have become dangerous, crime riddled hell holes that not even the police can save. Marjorie Taylor Greene, whose Twitter feed, while fucking insane, is a reliable bellwether of the far right. When the president goes out yesterday and hammers ghost guns and then says he wants to go further, the result of that will be probably a million Americans will go out and buy their first gun. Always. That's exactly what's going to happen. There are now five million more households with a gun as of now than there were two years ago. 
five million households have added a gun for the first time simply because they believe the Democrats want to take their guns away. Hours after the shooting, Green took to Twitter to question how many innocent people could have been armed if New York's firearm laws were less strict. With New York's strict gun control laws, how many innocent people were carrying a gun when the bad guy with the gun broke the existing laws and started shooting people? Bad guys don't care about gun control, and gun control only stops people from being able to protect themselves. The shooting comes during rising crime rates in New York, such as mass shootings and transit crime occurrences, including an incident where a woman was pushed to death in front of a subway train by a stranger in January. The MTA had vocalized the decreasing sense of safety felt by passengers and that it led to decreased usage of the subway system. At an MTA board meeting Monday, the NYPD inspector said crime is on the rise, fueled by a 50% increase in thefts, with many victims not paying attention or falling asleep. But robberies are up to 18% compared to this time last year. That says ridership has doubled. Crime trends were a topic of discussion among board members. The city's New Democrat Mayor Eric Adams, a former police officer, was swept into office on promises of cleaning up the city without resorting to the kind of draconian Giuliani-era measures that antagonized minority communities. He had pledged to increase security measures in the subway in February by sending more police patrols and taking measures to prevent the homeless from sleeping on trains or riding the same lines all night. At least six people were stabbed in the New York City subway in the same month. Following the latest shooting, Adams announced that the city will double the number of police officers in the subway. Adams had focused his promises on tackling crime and gun violence. He introduced his blueprint to end gun violence in January and took measures such as new anti-gun police units and stricter enforcement of low-level criminal offenses. Good afternoon, New York. In the last few weeks, we have seen an alarming rise in gun violence that has shocked our entire city. In my three weeks as your mayor, I have been with an officer who was shot in the head as he slept in his own car. I have met with the mother of a 19-year-old girl who was killed as she worked the night shift in East Harlem. I have been at the bedside of a police officer who was shot by a 16-year-old as they struggled for a gun. I have seen a topless, blood-stained pink jacket in the street. I have held hands and prayed with a mother. That 11-month-old baby was shot in the head by gunmen who didn't care where those bullets, bullets went. And on Friday night, two officers were ambushed when they answered a domestic violence call. The suspect had a 45 caliber in his hand and a loaded assault rifle under his mattress. NYPD officer Jason Rivera was killed in the line of duty that Friday night, doing what he swore an oath to do, protect the people of this city. We pray for him, his family, as well as for his partner, Officer Wilbert Mora, who remains in the hospital. But my fellow New Yorkers, we are going to do a lot more than pray. We're going to turn our pain into purpose. We're going to unite and take action. 
New Yorkers feel as if a sea of violence is engulfing our city. But as your mayor, I promise you, I will not let this happen. We will not surrender our city to the violent few. We're going to go back and we won't go back to the bad old days. President Joe Biden remarked on the attack briefly while speaking about energy prices at a bioprocessing plant in Iowa. He said that the first lady and he were praying for the victims of the attack, thanked the civilians who performed first aid before responders arrived to shooting scene, and stated that he had been in touch with Mayor Adams and the NYPD. I'd like to say a few words about the mass shooting in New York City subway this morning you've all read and heard about. Jill and I, my wife Jill and I, are praying for those who are injured and uh, all those touched by that trauma. And we're grateful for all the first responders who jumped into action, including civilians, civilians who didn't hesitate to help their fellow passengers and try to shield them. My team has been in touch with Mayor Adams and New York's police commissioner, and the Department of Justice and the FBI are working closely with the NYPD on the ground. We're going to continue to stay in close contact with New York authorities and as we learn more about the situation over the coming hours and days. And uh, something could have broken between now and the last hour. I haven't heard the news. I haven't spoken to any of my staff. But we're not letting up on it until we find out and we find the, the perpetrator. Mayor Adams condemned the attack in an interview with CNN and called it a senseless act of violence while praising transit workers for their conduct during the attack. New York politicians and lawmakers also stated that they were closely monitoring the situation. What concerns me the most is what I've been talking about for several uh, months now, uh, that we have many rivers that are feeding the sea of violence in our city and cities across America. And it's time for all lawmakers to be on the same page. The overproliferation of guns. We removed 1,800 guns off our streets in a little over three months, similar to the gun that was used. It's time for us to get serious about the guns in our city, including ghost guns. To be certain, there is a rise in crime, especially violent crime, going on in the U.S. But the spike appears to be a national one, and not just about the coastal blue cities that the right-wing media loves to demonize. According to Salon.com, Republican states are reporting much higher homicide rates and some of the highest murder rates are in cities led by Republican mayors. In fact, murder rates were an average of 40% higher in 2020 in the 25 states that Trump carried in the last election compared to states carried by Biden. Some of the biggest murder rate spikes, which began while Donald Trump was president, have been in states like Montana and South Dakota. New York City remains one of the safest cities in the country, while smaller cities like Jackson, Mississippi and Cleveland, Ohio are among those with the most violent crime. In just the past month, there were mass shootings in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Covington, Kentucky, Shelby, North Carolina, Sacramento, California, and Colorado Springs, Colorado. There are mass shootings everywhere because there are fucking guns everywhere. As crime analyst Jeff Asher and data scientist Rob Arthur recently wrote in The Atlantic, more guns are behind America's murder spike. 
There was a surge of gun buying at the beginning of the pandemic, and as night follows day, there was then a surge of people using their guns for what guns were designed to do, which is to shoot people. Indeed, federal data shows a clear-cut trend of newly purchased guns turning up at crime scenes. Well-meaning politicians will offer up their meaningless hopes and prayers for the victims of Tuesday's shooting. There will be calls to action with little follow-through, while the right will use the shooting as further ammunition to demonize America's cities as crime-ridden and failing. But in the end, it's regular folks who will suffer. People who have to ride the subway to work because they can't afford to take an Uber. But nothing is going to change. This is an election year, and gun control or gun rights is part of the larger culture war. Just tell me when to duck. I guess that's all we can do until someone takes the issue seriously and starts getting some of these guns off the street. And now for the main event. With the Brooklyn subway shooters safely behind bars, the question of how we deal with what has become an epidemic of gun violence in this country must be answered. So I turned to former FBI assistant director Frank Fagluzzi to help explain the correlation between rising gun ownership and gun violence, and why the right's belief that abolishing gun control is so misguided and dangerous. A return guest on Mea Culpa, Fagluzzi spent 25 years with the Bureau and was known as America's preeminent spy catcher. In addition, Fagluzzi was the keeper of the code and was appointed the FBI's chief inspector by then-director Robert Moeller. Charged with overseeing sensitive internal inquiries, shooting reviews, and performance audits, he ensured each employee met the Bureau's exacting standards of performance, integrity, and conduct. Today, he writes a weekly national security column for MSNBC and will release his first book in January entitled The FBI Way, which imparts his lessons from guiding the Bureau into an overall study of leadership. He also hosts the Amazing Bureau podcast, which is a must-listen to, so please check it out. He joins me today on Maya Culpa as we sort through the trauma of Tuesday's shooting. This is a must-listen for those tired of empty platitudes surrounding gun violence. So get ready and get mad only on Maya Culpa. And let's listen now to that conversation. Okay, so Frank... I want to start today by talking about yesterday's subway shootings here in New York City. And not only, I don't know if you know this, but many years ago, I was actually uh, on the board of the um, MTA. I was appointed by Governor Pataki to the Inspector General General Management Advisory Board. That was when Peter Calico was running it. So I have a true affinity for the subway system and the MTA here in New York. But the suspect... 62-year-old Frank James, you know, allegedly threw a series of smoke bombs uh, in a rush hour train and then opened fire, you know, wounding, I think they said 29 people. Now, James somehow escaped the melee and, um, you know, was recently caught and apprehended um, here by the New York City Police Department. Uh, Great job to those guys. Now, when a mass shooting happens and the suspect escapes, as James did, 
Walk me through how the various law enforcement agencies, both state and federal, work together to catch this guy. I mean, where did they first start? So it's in a place like New York where there's pre-established relationships, task forces. I mean, the largest joint terrorism task force is sitting in New York. and It's the first one in history. Those relationships result from embedded detectives and agents who break bread together, work out together, cubicle to cubicle, right? It's, it's, they know each other at every level of structure, ATF and marshals and FBI and NYPD. So um, first, they're used to doing everything together. They respond jointly to something like this. Why? Because the call has to be made is this going to go federal? Is this possibly terrorism? And, and they work it parallel to each other until they can decide, is there a terrorism motivation here? Should we rule it out or not? So today, sadly, that's the world of responses. We got to, you know, it used to be in the early days when I first started my career at the FBI, it was, hey, uh, police department, call us if you think there's a terrorism link. Today, Mike, it's, Michael, it's, it's we go together and we just we assume there's a terrorism link until we rule it out. So that's the nature of the response. And then there's no more are the days of turf consciousness and this is mine and this is yours. It's we're going to we're going to figure out charges later, whether it goes federal or state later. We got to get this guy now. And I want to I want to point out that I, the, the public, you know, the role the public played in this. We, I just saw the, the press conference as we're recording this now. And it's clear that there was a call, according to the commissioner, there was a call to Crime Stoppers tip line, right? If that's what, what led to these cops um, laying hands on this guy, kudos to that person. And I hope they get a cash reward. Today, we are crowdsourcing crime solving. We are, are all crime solvers because of the technology, the cameras, the, the, the dissemination of immediate information to the public. You know, there was an issue somewhere uh, during that same press conference. They were talking and asking questions about the cameras to which the police chief, you know, then expressed that the NYPD is not in charge of those cameras. Rather, those cameras are operated, maintained and controlled by the MTA, to which, of course, the NYPD and law enforcement have access to them. But if, in fact, that a camera is non-operational, that that's on the MTA and not on the NYPD. But another issue, uh, you know, that came up is allegedly during this whole melee after, you know, 10 people were actually struck and I think another 19 suffered other types of injuries associated uh, to Frank James's actions, he then disguised himself as a construction worker, right? And then, you know, somehow disappeared. You know, that's obviously premeditated. I mean, he's not walking around with a construction worker outfit for no reason at all. And yet at this point in time, they have absolutely no idea as to why he did this, what prompted this sort of insane act by the 62-year-old male. Yeah, well, now now the focus will indeed move from capture to figuring out motive and ideology. We're getting glimpses of that. With regard to pre-planning, for example, I think all of us, you know, upon initial reports, when, when you hear gas grenades, gas mask, right, you, you're talking immediately about pre-planning. You don't just walk around with gas grenades and canisters and gas masks. So he's been thinking about this, the, the, the kind of really smart idea of the construction 
outfit kind of, yep, everybody's going to work. Yep. All the construction workers are going to work. I, I look kind of official here. And the neat thing about that, I've seen this in bank robberies, Michael, is it's all anybody remembers when they're giving a witness statement, right? He had a construction uh, vest on. He had the, the hard hat on. Yeah. Okay. Um, skin color, uh, height, weight. I don't know, but he had a construction outfit on. So you can easily then discard that if you're the, if you're the bad guy. And now you're home free without without that garb on. But the downside of it is the cops then have this bright um, neon vest and hat to look for prior to your attack. Where were you moving? And they tell us that he he was in at least eight uh, subway stops before he committed that act. So now we're even hearing more about pre-planning because we heard today that the gun was legally purchased by him like something like years ago, the fire, the fireworks were purchased 10 months ago. So he has been brooding, obsessing over some real or perceived grievance. There's social media postings that are angry and grieved. All of that's going to be studied. And NYPD says, yeah, we knew this guy. We've arrested this guy. He's got nine priors here. Yeah, so six. I think six here in New York, three in New Jersey. Um, you know, you're right. It was Crime Stoppers tip that sent them over to the McDonald's that's on um, First Avenue and East 6th Street. You know, also a very densely populated area. Um, you know, they immediately, it's the ninth precinct, you know, immediately went shooting over there to the McDonald's. I mean, you got to give this guy, I don't know um, whether it's props for just not giving a shit or you just got to have him evaluated for a level of stupidity. Obviously, he knew his face was being plastered. This is not a guy that looks like he could blend in. In all fairness, you and I could possibly blend in, right? We kind of look alike. Or, you know, could you imagine if it's Michael Cohen that's on the lam, they go and they arrest Ben Stiller, right? I mean, you know, at the Right at the end of the day, this is a you know this is a very distinct looking guy. I mean, he looks like a ball player. You know, he's big. You know, um, bald the whole nine yards, and you know he's still walking around. Lo and behold, after he gets his food, it's not like he went back into hiding somewhere. The guy's walking down the street. He's on now St. Mark's Place, which is like, I don't know what, three, four blocks from East 6th. He's still there on First Avenue. Now it's St. Mark's Place. Walking nonchalantly, they approach him. No struggle at all. And he looked like, I mean, he's a big fella. So this could have been, you know, a real a real problem for the police department. I'm sure they came in there fully ready for, you know, some sort of an altercation. But this guy turned around and said, yeah, that's me. So everything you just described to me is indicative of somebody who, A, may have planned his, his attack very carefully, but gave little to no planning to post-attack escape. Or, as you're alluding to, simply did not give a damn. Now, whether that's mental health issue or not, we don't know yet. But this guy was not interested in some kind of elaborate escape. It may mean that he felt very justified in doing what he did. I I had to do this. You know, in his mind, right? I had to do this. I did it. So what? Here I am. Right. You know, another thing that really troubled me. Um, was not just the fact that he had nine priors and he's still legally capable of purchasing a handgun. You know, I used to be one of like a thousand people in New York that had a full concealed 
firearm uh, permit, which of course was taken from me based upon my conviction, my felony conviction. But I find it, I find it, what's the right word? Fucking infuriating that this guy can walk around with a firearm legally, right? Um, though in this case, I don't think he had a concealed you know, uh, permit for it, but he was able to acquire the gun legally. And yet, what did I do? I paid for the president to get his pecker pulled by a porn star. And now I'm not, I'm not capable of defending myself. And worse now than ever before are the sort of verbal attacks. Like just the other day, I was walking with my wife on the street and this fucking jerk off in a, in a Range Rover, a uh, blue, a navy blue Range Rover, rolls down the window and starts yelling at me. And to be honest, you know, it's something that I had told Ben Stiller when he was on the show and uh, Saturday Night Live was making fun of me, looking around, who, who, who. What most people don't know is that I'm mostly deaf in my left ear. And so when you're inside that room, that chamber, I couldn't tell because the sound whips around. Anybody who has hearing loss will understand this, right? It whips around that chamber room because of the oval ceiling and the and the shape of the room. Um, you know, starts to so I walk over and he's like, why don't you go back to fucking jail? You know, and I turned around and I was like, you know, uh, why does your daddy miss me? You know, and, you know, so I said to him, anytime you want to step out of the car, even though I happen to still be on probation, I'm more than happy to smash a hole in your face, right? Just step out of the car. And of course, like the fucking pussy that he is, what does he do? He takes off. So of course I get his license plate number and now I'll probably run it or something like that. But this is the, I, what if he wanted to get out? What if he ends up coming out you know, with a, with a bat or a stick? Or what if hypothetically, instead of just even yelling at me, and this has happened before, you know, a guy wants to start to confront me. I'm not I'm not entitled to ha to protect myself as I used to have my firearms and that brings me to a second second point. I did also have two Glocks. I had the mini 9mm and I had the mini 40 uh 40 caliber uh you know Glocks. Those guns never jam. How fortunate were these folks on this end train that his Glock 9mm jammed. The reason why most police officers carry it, one, you never have to clean them, right? And they still operate perfect, and they never jam. Lo and behold, here, due to the jam, despite the fact, nine, you know, 29 people got hurt, 10 shot, 19 hurt by other injury, but it could have been much, much worse. And thank God that the gun did actually jam. Yeah. So, wow. There's a lot to unpack there, Michael. So first, I'm sorry, this is going, going, your, uh, this is going this way for you on the streets of New York. Um, and be careful with that. You just don't know who's got the gun, even though you're the one that perhaps should have it to protect yourself. You've raised another issue though. This is a great, this is a great issue that we're going to have to follow up with the media on, which is chronology of the, of this guy's charges these are and, and in relationship to his purchase in Ohio of the weapon, right? So what what came first? How many did he have felony charges prior to purchase? Maybe you, you've seen this. I'm not yet. You know, what's the chronology of felony conviction? It's conviction, not arrest. Um, with regard to the purchase in Ohio, what what failed, if anything, there with a background check or not? Was it all misdemeanors? I, I heard his priors. They didn't sound like misdemeanors to me, but let's let's see what what happened there. Um, with regard to the larger debate that will go on, right? Because I've already seen it on the different networks because it's, we're divided horribly today. You know, 
see that? New York has really strict laws and it happened there anyway. Well, okay, no, if the gun came in from somewhere else. So let's not let's not get wound wound around the axle on that. But it will spark this this renewed debate once again about who gets a gun and when, who doesn't have get to have one, back universal background checks or not. I carried a when I was in the FBI, um, we changed we changed weapons uh, three times. But but uh, at the end of my career, I was carrying a, a Glock. It was a it was a forty, a Model twenty two. A uh, big, certainly nothing mini about it. All barely concealable under under jacket, and yes, they perform extremely well. You can put thousands of rounds through there, and we do at firearms. But jamming also sometimes. Let's remember that he was carrying with him extended magazines, multiple extended magazines, which in the state of New York is illegal. illegal. Yeah, it's illegal. So sometimes, sometimes when you're putting a non-approved uh, magazine into into a good weapon you're going to cause issues with it. So that that could be the cause of the jamming. And user error, just not you know panicking, not using proper grip and trigger pull, that, that will cause it to jam as well. You know, me personally, I was thinking that maybe he bought cheap ammunition and it actually wasn't a jam, but rather it was a misfire. Um, you know, I've had several of those. You know, I used to have a car, uh, a, a, um, a, a, 320, a, a 327, and that gun used to jam on me all the time so i got rid of it and of course i got the the mini nine uh, millimeter that was originally only for police issue and then they opened it up to the public and the second i heard that they were opening up to the public i got rid of my you know my car uh and i got rid of you know and then i bought this uh mini nine which i was just absolutely fabulous You've raised a good point on jamming. So the times when I've had jams on the firearms range is when we when we would go in the in the bureau to uh, to save money, we'd go with re- what's called reloads. Reloads, yeah, yeah, right. And so you're getting those spent casings. They should go in the trash, in my opinion, or be sold for for scrap metal. But instead, to save money, you load them. This is only for practice. I don't want people to panic and think that this is what they carry on the street. But for practice purposes, they they load them with new powder and they make a new bullet. Those things jam a lot. A and lot. It's actually yeah. it's actually good practice to do the jam drill. You know, the tap rack bang, clearing mm-hmm. the weapon. And um, but that that's exactly what may have happened there. Yeah, that's what that's what I was thinking. But you know, I'll tell you what else I was thinking. The second that I saw this, the first thing that ran through my mind was terrorism, right? And I don't know why, but here in New York, I think so much of what happens, the first thing that comes to our mind, maybe because of September 11th, maybe, you know, just because of what happened in Boston, I don't know. The first thing that came to my mind was terrorism. But obviously, this appears to be the work of a single, obviously a very deeply disturbed individual. Now, what are your sources saying about this guy, Frank James's profile and his history? Something that we just started to touch on a minute ago. So I, you know, it's interesting. I did not get the feel of terrorism for this. And I'm, I'm not, you know, e- even early on, I just, I knew it had to be ruled out, but I, I just didn't get the feel of it. This is a great opportunity for us to talk about, when you talk about profile, to talk about um, everybody's need to understand the warning signs and indicators of when someone they know is on the pathway to violence. I, I want to—I'd be remiss, Michael, if I didn't take a minute to just do that. Because you it's take more a than a, you take more than a minute because this is an important, yeah. important topic. Yeah. 
Yeah, I do. And I'm going to get on my soapbox because someone, you know, someone out there, and I'm not blaming anybody, but someone out there knew this guy was on the verge. And this notion that people just snap, you know, you hear it, you used to hear it in the old days. Oh, he just snapped. No, people don't snap. In fact, when we study mass shooters, and we unfortunately, we have a huge body of research on this because we've had lots of mass shootings. They are called grievance collectors. They carry grievances. They kind of put that grievance in their sack behind their back every time someone wrongs them, real or perceived, whether it's racism or the subway system or the mayor or I got screwed on my job. And then they turn it into brooding and obsessing and they use the language of despondency. I can't take it anymore. I can't handle it. I've tried everything I can. And the people around them hear this. This is not done in silence. They'll write about it. They'll draw pictures. Then they go and start acquiring a weapon or the the, 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 uh, the gas mask, the gas canisters. They start articulating how they're going to do it. But here's the important part. you got to intervene and call someone and report this before they get to the next step. What's the next step? This kind of self-isolation. It's very eerie. So here they go talking, talking, talking about their grievances. I can't take it anymore. And then they get very quiet and they recede into the woodwork just before the flashpoint, just as they're ready to go. That's a scary time. That can last anywhere from a day to a month. But that silent period, that disappearing period is a scary time. you got to be that one who calls and errs on the side of caution and says, I'm, I'm worried about this guy. And what are we hearing about this guy? The social media posts were his way of articulating, in fact, to the world. I'm I'm in trouble. I'm I pose a threat here, and and we got we're going to hear the story about whether somebody did or did not do something about that. Yeah, so that's a that's a great point because he did post a whole slew of rants on YouTube. Now I don't follow the guy, and even if by coincidence I came across his YouTube rant, you know, why would I don't know the guy from a hole in the wall. So how would I know whether this is just an angry guy or whether, but somebody who knew him and was close enough to him should have seen that change that you so appropriately described. Because even in one of his crazy rants, he mentions Eric Adams, you know, uh, our new mayor here in New York, where he claims that a race war, right, is going to follow the Ukrainian conflict. But he goes on and on about, you know, um, it's just a matter of time before these, you know, motherfuckers decide, hey, listen, enough is enough. And then he uses the N-word. These ends, you know, got to go, he says. Now, where the, the two don't even mesh together. You're talking about the Ukrainian conflict. And then, of course, you know, he he goes right into that sort of, um, you know, race war you know, N-word, throwing around nonsense. And obviously, somebody who knew him should have then, you know, gone on. Because then in, in another one, again, he starts talking about how, like, uh, unlike President Volodymyr Zelensky in Ukraine, nobody has your back. The whole world is against you, and you're against your fucking self. So why should you be alive again uh, is the fucking question. And it goes on to use the N-word again, that the only reason that they're on this planet is to pick cotton or chop sugar cane or tobacco. I mean, these are not normal rants. Now, Again, I don't know him from Adam, so you know maybe it is normal for him. But if it's not, that's probably, and this is where I'm thankful to have you on, Maya Culpa, with your experience. You know, um, 
in FBI investigations and so on, right? This is not normal behavior and probably people who knew him could have or should have seen the telltale sign. Right. So if, if, if listeners out there are wondering this very question, so look, you're describing somebody, you know, who's a coworker or the guy down the street or my uncle, when do I know when it's time to take it seriously and report? And one of the things I tell people is look for specificity of time, place, and action. So ranting about Ukraine, fine, you know, okay, got that. But when somebody starts saying with specificity, if I had a gun, I'd take this guy out. If I had a chance to run my boss over, I'd do it in a second. If I ever see that guy again, I'll kill him. That's getting very specific to time, place, person, target, right? Method of doing it. And, and that's when you need to get very, very concerned and report it before it goes to that isolation period and then flashpoint. Um, my guess is, Michael, if indeed he had any kind of circle of family or friends at all, somebody's going to go, God darn it. Um, he was starting to articulate specificity. He, he, yeah, he had it really in. Now, when you're dealing with perhaps clinical mental health issues, all, all bets can be off here. And, and, and so my guess is it's quite possible when detectives really sit him down, if he decides to, to waive his rights and talk, I've seen this happen in my own career. We, you know, we catch a serial bomber and we're all dying to hear the profilers are in the next room. The, the whole team is waiting, you know, looking through the glass. What's he going to say? Why did he do it? We all have bets on why. And he, he just spouts absolute nonsense, right? It makes perfect sense to him, but it throws all of the logic and profiling out the window. So I don't know where this is going, but whatever he did, it made sense to him. So much sense that he decided to hang around walk around New York City. Yeah, but, you know, again, going back to the specificity, would you then turn around and say in another one of his rants when he says to this rival um, guy that he knew from his youth, right, I need to see you bleed, and then he vows to watch him die like a rat. I mean, that, okay. I mean, that, we're getting to the point where it's hyper-aggressive, and it's probably <laughs> something that should have, you know, triggered yeah. somebody, including that rival, you know, youth, um, you know, he may want to say something to somebody. Well, you're 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 being polite when you say hyper aggressive. That that is, I, and I haven't seen that one, but that is potentially chargeable as a crime when you're specific to time and threat. And threat is called a threat to life in the law enforcement world. Uh, some of this stuff might have been chargeable. So the question then is, who is really looking at his social media postings or hearing him? You know, on a generic term, Michael, it's gotten um, very interesting in the social media world. There are filters in place at places like Facebook and, and Twitter to look for, not, not to look at you individually because there's an anonymity there. It's very carefully done. But there are algorithms to look for words of violence mm -hmm. and threat. And the alarms will go off in the safety security department at, say, Facebook and say, you got a problem here. Somebody's, somebody's sounding violent to us per the algorithm. That's when Facebook or Google or, or Twitter will call the FBI or the police and say, we think we have a problem. We don't know who it is because it's anonymous. We can't look at it. But if you want if you want to get legal court process, we can share that with you. So that goes on. But what I'm arguing for is on a personal level, each of us, we've got to install that filter and algorithm so we can see it in other people before somebody gets hurt. Yeah, I told, listen, I totally agree with you. But what made 
this shooting um, very uh, upsetting. So, yeah, upsetting is a good word for it, is that the shooting came on the heels of President Biden's announcement that he was going to crack down on so-called ghost guns and other measures, right, that are fueling a rise in gun violence nationwide. I mean, we started seeing numbers all over the place in terms of, you know, and we're trying to justify, well, it was worse in the late 1990s. That doesn't do anything to the, for the families like these people that were on the train that got shot, right? And so unfortunately, nobody killed um, from what I understand, but nevertheless shot. Now, it appears that the president uh, will use this as a democratic wedge in the midterms with the GOP, who, of course, will push back on all fronts against any gun control, which they just so regularly do. Meanwhile, at the end of the day, nothing is being done. Now, yeah. the president could get his choice for the head um, of the ATF, this uh, David Chipman, right? I think it was confirmed and subsequent choices are now being attacked for any suggestion that they want to control the flow of firearms. If you would, discuss with me how we can find truly a sensible solution in what has become an endless, and I mean an absolutely endless political football. And I'm just going to go back and use myself as the example. When I ultimately got my full, you know, carry, concealed carry here in New York, I had to have an FBI threat assessment done. And it was amazing because I'm sitting there in my office at Trump Tower, three doors down from Donald, and I have an FBI agent in the office because of the number of threats that I was getting because of my appearances on television, uh, you know, for, for Donald and so on. Because, again, he just brings that, you know, that crazy out in the crazies. Now, I don't think the FBI agent was sitting in my office for more than three minutes when the phone rang. I put it on speakerphone, no idea who the person was, and it was another death threat you know, not just to me, but to my family as well. And I said, how long do you want to sit here in my office for? Because every, every hour I get two, three, four, five of these. It was really upsetting. And look, I get my, you know, I was doing what I was doing. And, you know, if in fact, God forbid something would have happened, at least it's on me. But what I was most fearful of, of course, my wife and my children, right? And, you know, I don't even want to talk to them about it other than to constantly remind them to be safe and always look over your shoulder and don't put yourself into a situation, you know, where you're by yourself or that you're walking down a street that you don't see anybody on. Though, of course, in New York, that's rare, but it does happen. So, look, you, you're asking about and you're right. The irony here is, you know, just before the shooting, the day before we I, I myself was on television covering the press conference uh, by President Biden to announce a, a new nominee, yet another nominee to the ATF director position, because the ATF sadly has not had a director for about seven years. That's a crime in itself, in my opinion. It's a reflection of how politicized Congress is that no matter who nominates somebody, whether it was Trump and he did, or whether it was Biden and he did, no one can come to agreement on who should lead the ATF. Um, but that's emblematic of this much larger question you're getting to, which is what is the solution? How do we find a middle ground? I have to tell you, I am not very optimistic on this. There are two very simple bills that have been pending, Michael, that are no brainers. Even if you interview the people on the street, go out on the streets of New York and say, hey, 
Excuse me. Can I ask you something? Um, do you think everybody should get a background check before they purchase a, a weapon? And and but the surveys show us that everybody goes uh, yes. And and do you, do you think people who shouldn't or who are dangerous and shouldn't have a gun should just be able to go in and get one without a check? No. And then let's go, go to the next question. Um, do you think that if you apply, if you go do a background check, and there's some question during the background process that it, the system should default to handing you the gun until they figure out the question? No, no, you should hold the gun, the American public says, until you figure out the discrepancy, right? But those are two bills pending right now. Wait, there's, one, there's, there's, one, more, there's one more on that one that I think you're forgetting, which is that after you receive or you put through the permit, there's like a 72-hour waiting period because they believe that they call that the cool-down period in the event that there is some sort of a domestic dispute yep. and the person goes crazy. They go in, they want to get a gun immediately, right? right immediately, right. at least 72 hours, you've had a chance to calm the yep. hell down, right? And hopefully right. avoid, you know, what we see unfortunately well, happen all too often. Aren't there states that require some kind of arbitration period for divorce or some kind of negotiation period or right, waiting period? Right. But no, not for a gun. You can go grab a gun. So, so it, nothing's moving on those proposed bills, and there are no brainers that actually resonate with the American public. So the Congress is not even representing their constituents. And then this press conference with Joe Biden on ghost guns, it's simply a president trying to get around the inaction in Congress by doing whatever he can himself. And you know what this was about was a redefinition of what a firearm is, because the president's trying to say, you know what? Reality has gotten out in front of us. There's these parts and kits and unmarked 3D printed, you know, assemblies and receivers and gun frames that people are buying and getting them in the mail, some of them from China and Pakistan, people cranking out these in machine shops in their garage. We've got to stamp them and make them traceable and require a background check for them because it's getting out of control. He did what he could do, but it was the first time in 50 years that we've actually looked at the definition of a firearm. And now we're saying, you know what? The pieces and parts are now a firearm. If you sell them, you're a firearms dealer. If you buy them, you need a firearms background check. Good for him for doing it. I know the guy he's nominated to be ATF director, Steve Dettelbach. He was the US attorney in Northern Ohio when I was the head of the FBI in Northern Ohio. We were partners. He's a good guy. He's not going to go into, you know, he's already getting bashed like crazy in right-wing media. He's not a guy who's going to come in your house and take away your lawful possession of a weapon, right? He's a law enforcement practitioner and prosecutor, but here we go. He's going to have a tough time, but I think he can do the job. You know, let's just talk about these things with ghost guns because it's almost, it's almost our technology has outstripped our sense of reality. You know, we have the same thing going on, you know, whether it's, you know, now with the abortion law, right? A child uh, at the age of, what was it, like 10 weeks or something like that, um, you know, ended up, they put them in, you know, one of these chambers and they, they basically, they grew the baby. Let's not go back too far in our lives, Frank, because we're around the same age. You remember the test tube baby, right? Uh, and so on. I've always been curious. I Dying to know whatever happened. You know, I don't even remember if it was a male or a female. I just remember it always being referred to as the test tube baby. But, you know, these are actual firearms made out of that hard plastics uh, or composites that 
have the ability to, you know, um, project a, you know, uh, a projectile, right, with as if no different than if it was a standard medical, uh, metal or uh, other type of composite gun like our Glocks, right? Um, this is very, very, very dangerous. And I'm not really sure how anybody can stop, you know, this, you know, this madness, right? When you have people who are able, you know, to manufacture these parts because the instructions are easily downloadable uh, off of the internet. And once you end up doing that and you put the parts into the machine and you have it and you've downloaded it, you know, you could make as many of these suckers as you want in a garage. I mean, if you think about it, it's it's really truly, um, it's not just dangerous, it's scary because many people, obviously that, you know, if you want to own a gun illegally, you know, you go through whatever back channels in the alleys in order to get it. But then you have to be fearful that that guy gets pinched and then they roll on you. Here, it's totally different. It's all anonymous. You could send these parts anywhere. I just think this is really, uh, it's the beginning. Again, our technology has now outpaced our laws. And if they don't get something very soon on the books, you're going to start. Look, they were able to do it with those bump stocks right? That turns an ordinary rifle into a, you know, into a machine gun. I mean, they were able to do that. There has to be, there has to be an addition, an addendum to the Gun Control Act in order to cover, you know, buy, build, shoot kits, which is what they're called, these ghost guns. That's right. Yeah. Well, it's two different, two slightly different issues that are related. The, the idea of a non-traceable plastic or a gun, which I've seen done in 3D printing. I've actually seen them made. I've seen them pass through metal detectors uh, without detection. Um, there is, a, the good news is there's a federal law about uh, manufacturing and possessing untraceable guns, meaning undetectable guns, plastic. There is not, as you say, um, something other than what Biden did the other day was to simply regulate ghost guns, which are often metal. They're, they're metal made in machinist shops, but they've got no stamps on them. You buy kits, as you say, and you put them together from various parts. Um, yeah, all he did was redefine and require licensing um, and serial numbers, but it's not against the law necessarily, right? So um, it's going to be it's going to be challenged in court. I've already seen people on, on the on the far right saying, look, um, this is an invasion of my privacy. I want to do. I want to make a gun in my house. I can make a gun in my garage. And I, I say this to them: um, Do you have an automobile registration? Do you have a driver's license? Because that's a that's a two thousand pound vehicle. That's a deadly weapon. You've got no problem registering that, but you've got a problem registering your gun or licensing or putting a serial number on your gun. That makes no sense to me. And how would you feel if you sell that gun to a guy down the street? And he goes off and does the subway shooting or, or kills children in a school. You got no problem with that being untraceable to him? Is that really what you're looking for? It makes no sense to me. Yeah, it makes no sense to me either. But they exist and they are truly a danger, you know, to, to the future of this country. And by the way, in the event that it is untraceable and somebody gets caught with it on, yes, there are the federal laws against it because it is considered a firearm and carrying an illegal firearm in New York is a mandatory five years uh, in jail. What does that do for the person who got shot or killed? 
What does it do for the family that's now mourning the loss of these of these people? What is it going to do for that young boy that I was watching on television who got shot through the knee? Right. What's it going to do for him? Now, in this case, it was not, you know, one of these ghost guns and it was obviously traceable. But what if it was? What's it going to do for him? The fact that he's going to be walking with a limp probably for the rest of his life because some asshole in their garage ends up making an untraceable gun. I don't I don't get it. Well, great, great point. Largely what we've been talking about so far is really after the fact. It's it's it helps police. And this is great. It helps police trace a gun to to its sale and user but the damage has already occurred so thank goodness in this case that we you know we've heard today from nypd in the press conference really what made a difference for them in putting this guy the suspect in the subway shooting from person of interest to suspect was they easily traced that gun found to his purchase of it okay and and there you go literally a smoking gun imagine if it was a ghost gun no no serial number no licensure, no tracing requirements. They still not, may, they might not have a prosecutable case yet on, on him. So, yes, it's cleaning up the wreckage afterwards. And yes, we need laws that are proactive and further regulate guns and only allow people who should have them to possess them. Okay, so that's that brings me to my next question for you because obviously an issue like this brings out the far right, and now the far right wants to declare gun control outdated right I mean, and they you know they they make all sorts of arguments as if you know if people were armed on the train this madman would have you know would not have shot all these people that someone could would have and could have shot him right now we're talking about the wild fucking west going on here right everybody whips out their firearm and they all start shooting right now of course this comes on the heels of the appointment of um you know of the new ATF you know director as well as Biden um you know making declarations about these ghost guns and so on. What are you hearing on this? Because to me, I have to be honest with you. If I was on that train and I had my firearm, I'm not so certain that I would have pulled it out and shot him unless I had a clear, direct shot you know, at him. Because I remember many, many years ago in 1987, I worked in the in the Capitol. I worked for Congressman Joe Moakley. And during our training of what goes on, I remember Secret Service telling us, if in fact you hear the alarm go off and you're in the chamber and so on, you know, and the president is in there because he was going to be speaking, you hit the floor and you stay there because we will shoot through you to get to the target. Am I right about what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Now, people... People we were instructed to hit the floor and stay there. All right. Yeah, because I'm still, I'm, I'm still waiting for the body of evidence. I, when I hear people say this all the time, we need more good guys with guns. And and then, you know, at best, there are these one-off examples, Michael, where, yeah, you see 10 years ago, this grandma shot this guy, break it into her house. Oh, okay. That's great. Um, I, I want to see the body of evidence that shows that this actually works on a, on a large scale. It does not. And in fact, it's incredibly dangerous. The number of, of incidents with kids getting their hands on dad's gun, mom's gun, people accidentally shooting themselves while cleaning a weapon. This notion that um, that you're going to shoot it out on a crowded subway train with no training. And I, I've had extensive training, arguably the best law enforcement gun training in the world at, at the FBI Academy. 
Um, yeah, shooter restraint is something that we call um, uh, the judgment of when to shoot and don't shoot and who thinks you're the bad guy and where's the undercover cop on that train who thinks you're the shooter and takes you out and, the, and then learning about what's behind you. It's called target acquisition. So in a smoke screen, smoke filled environment, which this was with the gas canisters, you are I, I'm not going to find true target acquisition. I'm not going to be able to know who's behind my target. That's another factor you've got to consider in a split second. And is there an innocent person? And this gun is going to go, this round is going to go through my target and hit the innocent person. It's smoke filled. Get out. I tell people just get out, run, hide, fight is what's going to save your life. Not shooting it out in a subway car. Right. I mean, what's going to happen? You have a complete melee going on inside of an area if you've ever been inside of a subway right of a subway car you have at best at best six feet of space between seat to seat right one seat faces north the other faces south you have six and then there are poles in between constantly throughout the car not only do you have to have a clear sight? Because I took, I had quite a bit of training myself, you know, um, with live ammo in in situations where we're shooting against targets, um, but they're moving, they're moving, moving screens. Um, fortunately, there's Kevlar behind it, so nothing's get, you know getting through. But it's it's significant training, and on several occasions, you know, there are these sort of scenarios that they keep throwing at you that you have to, you know, obviously try to advance you know what's going on here and um truth be told what ends up happening is you find that you end up hurting somebody and you get hurt yourself you have people bull rushing you you're trying to get a clear shot so obviously you need to have your stance you know obviously in perfect formation he's not standing still mind you you got smoke everywhere there's screaming and yelling and on top of that you have gunfire by him going off, you know, under perfect scenario, yeah, if you were behind, you know, a, uh, a, a rock or a tree or a bulletproof, you know, uh, protective glass, yeah, I would say, you know, maybe you stick around and you try to fight it out. But this is not like grandma in the house. The guy, you know, breaks through the door and you're standing there with gun to chest and you just rapid fire, right? Which is the way they teach you to do it. If someone's coming through your door and you have no place, you know, to, you know, um, to run to, for safety. But this, you know, so this notion to me is very scary. And I have a limited amount of training compared to you. It's got to be scary that... All of a sudden, you could be on a train. A guy does something stupid like this. 20 people pull out guns because they want to be the hero of the day. Next thing you know, you know, 20 different people get shot by 20 different people. Yeah, I'd, 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 be, uh, I'd be far more in favor of it if all these people had the kind of training that, that sounds like you've had or I've had. But I have to tell you, in a place like Texas, for example, and other states are doing this now, Ohio uh, as well, you've got permitless you know, unlicensed, no training, no permit carry. And um, you walk in, you, you buy the gun, you're, you're done. And they don't know what they're doing with these weapons. And they you carry them around. Cops have to assume everybody they pull over is armed. Um, it's a dangerous environment. And, and what's happened in Texas in, increasingly is you're seeing things like road rage, 
where you know where somebody cut me off at the in the uh, in the cashier line at the, in the checkout line at the grocery store and people are shooting each other because why well it's another option i have now because it's sitting on my hip now it's bad it's bad idea yep yeah it's it's really a bad idea so let me ask you this then in a recent op-ed for msnbc you wrote about the frightening degree to which pro-insurrectionist rot uh, has infiltrated American intelligence. And I'm going to quote it. It was already known that at least 13% of defendants arrested in the January 6th investigation have current or former law enforcement or military affiliation. Now we're learning that the powerful cocktail of conspiracy theories and race-based hate has revealed itself among members of some of the U.S. intelligence communities, 18 different agencies. Now, first off, how deep does the problem go? Is it organized or on some deeper level? Um, and finally, what can be done to cleanse the institutions of this madness? Yeah, this is a, this is a cancer, um, and it's you know you know I think we all are aware of the stats regarding the January six defendants who've been arrested, military, law enforcement, active duty, retired, oath keepers, particularly. We we we've got our arms around that. We're working with it. Even the Department of Defense, Secretary Austin has implemented um, you know this kind of battle against extremism within the DoD. That's fantastic. They're looking at, at social media postings, for example, and you can be disciplined in the military. But now here comes this report from a report veteran intelligence community reporter named Jeff Stein. He has a, he has a, uh, a podcast and a blog called Spy Talk. And he determines through sources um, that in intelligence community chat rooms, plural, classified, by the way, Michael, classified chat rooms sponsored by the intelligence community so that intelligence analysts and professionals can collaborate. They need to. They, they're like scientists. And Intel, Intel people need to collaborate on the latest, you know, intercept or what did you make of that assessment? What did you have you read that report yet? That's fantastic. But now it comes out that what they're doing in some of these chat rooms, particularly one called eChirp, which is kind of like classified Twitter. Um, in the community is it's filled with racism, anti-Semitism. Uh, it's um, it's pro-January Gen 6th insurrection talk. Now, you ask what that, how we quantify that. I hope to God it's a minority on there, but understand that it's been going on so long that nobody's really done anything about it or reported it. So the environment is disturbing to me. And uh, how do we get around this? Okay. I, I suggest in the column that I wrote for MSNBC Daily, we've we, we've got to do what looks more like what DOD is doing, which is leaders need to lead. They need to make it quite clear that they're no longer going to sponsor classified environments for people to exchange radical thought, ra I mean, radicalized ideas, violent extremism, hatred that has no place on taxpayer funded, agency funded chat rooms. If it's inappropriate to say in the employee break room, it should be inappropriate and disciplinary to say it on a chat room. And then lastly, let's make social media postings, just like the military, let's make it part of your security clearance review. Not only when you apply for that job and that security clearance, but also for your ongoing reviews that occur throughout your career for your, your security clearance. Let's do what the DOD is doing. Own up to your, your postings, your media presence, and let's make that subject to review. If you're stupid enough to believe that, that the nonsense of conspiracy theories 
QAnon theories, if you bought the big lie that you think that Donald Trump is still the president of the United States, I don't need you serving in the intelligence community because you don't have the judgment to be an intelligence professional. Though I don't want my listeners to get scared over this. I want to be a little bit more clear, right? So 700 individuals in connection with the January 6th breach, uh, the insurrection, um, have been charged so far, of which 81 of them have connections, 81. So it's, a, it's more, you know, it's obviously more than 10% um, have somehow connections to our military or law enforcement. Now, to be very clear, though, I believe it's either five of them are active. You know, four of them were in, uh, you know, Marines and one, I think, was in the Navy, uh, the Air Force, a Naval uh, Academy or something like that. Now, those five should obviously not be serving in our, you know, in our military. But the bulk of the rest of these, say, 76 individuals, they're all veterans, right? They're either veterans or previous law enforcement. They're now retired or whatnot, which scares me a lot because what ends up happening is you start to see that they have that conspiratorial mindset about them. And now you start to understand why it is that so many people have been improperly charged, um, arrested, you know, convicted, you know, based upon race, religion, creed, color, sexual orientation, or whatnot, because their mindset is, you know, is screwed up. And obviously, while they were still active, um, you know, that's where you start to, for me at least, that's where I start to understand why some of these cases um, occurred. And thankfully, many of them have been able to get out, unfortunately, and I know this from firsthand experience, uh, after suffering, you know, incarceration when you should not have been incarcerated. You're making a good point with regard to um, percentages of the population and of various communities. Um, and there's no science to extrapolating, okay, if we if 13% of the folks um, who are inside the Capitol doing bad things are have some affiliation with law enforcement or military, what does that say about active duty? Same for this chat room, these chat rooms we're talking about in the, the Intel community. Although it shocks me that anybody in the smart enough to be in the intel community is believing this crap, but um, so there's no science to say, okay, what does that mean in reality for the for the agencies writ large? But I have to tell you, Michael, um, through my through my contacts, through my sources, still in these agencies, through talking to cops, um, some of whom are you know uh, close friends of mine, uh, this is a pervasive attitude um, in police departments in the military. You keep hearing about Fox News being played all over army bases around the world. It's true. Um, it's a mess. It's a it's a mess. And I don't know how deep the MAGA ideology goes in some of these. And I have to tell you, when you it, when I read this reporting about the Intel community chat rooms, it did cause me to pause and think about January 6th and the Intel leading up to January 6th that was seemingly not acted upon but that was staring all of us in the face. So then let me ask you this. In recent weeks, it appears that the January 6th committee is now split on whether or not to make a criminal referral to the Justice Department for the actions of none other than Donald J. Trump. Now, I find this incredibly disheartening, and I worry that once again, despite all of the overwhelming evidence, and I talk about this all the time here on Mea Culpa, that Trump is just going to slip away from accountability. 
Am I right to worry? Or does this mean that the Justice Department is actually moving to build a case um, on their own and such actions, you know, would be redundant? Explain the thought process to my listeners, if you would, as it seems crazy. I mean, crazy is not even the right word for it. It's, it's insane to let Trump off the hook in any way. Uh, yes, it is. Um, and... Here are my thoughts on a criminal referral and where DOJ might be as well. The good news here in the last what, week or so now, I'm losing track, quite frankly, is that there is a grand jury sitting. We've learned there's a federal grand jury sitting in Washington, D.C. that is actively subpoenaing people. This is how we've learned, for example, that Ali Alexander has been subpoenaed and allegedly will cooperate. So for those who are saying there's no prosecutive attempt being made at high levels, here, no, there is. There is. Is it moving fast enough? Probably not. But it's incredibly encouraging that a grand jury has been convened and is subpoenaing live individuals, even some who are going to cooperate, is outstanding news. With regard to the, the select committee making a criminal referral, we've had in the last couple of days, Adam, two members at least, Adam Kinziger and Zoloff Ofgren, go public. Adam Kinziger is exercised on this, by the way, he's adamantly saying there is no divide, there is no split, and they are united on this. So I don't know. In fact, Zoe Lofgren got on MSNBC yesterday and, and, and just chastised the New York Times reporting on this and said it was literally flat out wrong. So, OK, but here's here's where I am on this. I don't want I, I don't need any kind of over analysis and overthinking and political correctness on, on strategizing on the committee's part about whether or not it will impact the public's perception negatively. If we give a criminal referral to DOJ because DOJ is going to feel like we're pressuring them and Fox News is going to say that it's a bunch of Democrat lackeys telling Garland what to do. I'm done. I'm done with overthinking that stuff. If you've got evidence, and I believe they have overwhelming evidence that Donald Trump is involved, knew, knew, repeatedly knew and was told that there was no fraud commensurate with overturning an election and did it anyway, all of this has to be referred. Do I and 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 public perception be damned? They've got to get this over to DOJ. I believe there's a middle ground here, Michael, which is. They've, they've done an amazing job, and we're going to see public uh, testimony showing this. Get all your evidence together, put it in a bow, and leave off the last paragraph. In other words, do not say, we're referring this to you for criminal prosecution, or we believe Trump's a crook. Leave it off. Just give them the evidence give them, and walk away from it. That To me, that is a middle ground here that allows the public to go, okay, they did their job, they handed it over. And, and DOJ could say, we're looking at it, we're not looking at it, we don't care. But I, I think that's the way to go. Yeah, DOJ, look, I, I'm incredibly critical of Merrick Garland. You know, I, again, I've now seen what Alvin Bragg dropping the ball here in Manhattan, and I know he dropped the ball because I know the evidence. In fact, Alvin, since I'm sure you're listening to my podcast, right, or anybody who is friends with Alvin who wants to pass this message along, I know more about this fucking case than you do. Not only have I met with them 15 times for hours on edge, right, and had, Mer uh, what do you call it, Mark Pomerantz and Carrie Dunn and guys like um, Solomon Scheinrock, the whole group of them, 
Not only did they start this investigation while I was still in Otisville, I've met with them when I was released and then, of course, incarcerated, then released again and met with them thereafter. I know the documents because I gave it to them. I know the things that they're looking at because we discussed it ad nauseum. There is also right now a grand jury impaneled and everybody's just waiting for for Alvin Bragg. My hope is that Merrick Garland grows a set of cojones and actually pulls the fucking trigger once and for all and indicts the guy. And again, don't worry about whether or not he's convicted. Right. Is it any different than it? And I, I say that simply because the same with the impeachment trials. The House did what they were supposed to do by filing the articles of impeachment, not once, but twice. Where was Donald convicted? No, he knew the Senate, which was Republican controlled, was never going to. But at least you brought the action and at least you held the person accountable for his actions. Alvin Bragg, by doing what he's doing and lying to the American people and New York and saying that the investigation is still ongoing, that we're looking at new evidence. There is no new evidence, my friend. I know exactly what happened. I was there with Donald. I had the documents, gave it to them. They returned it. I'm not buying it. I hope Merrick Garland does better, right, than Alvin Bragg did because to allow Donald to escape again is just so traumatic to American democracy that we may never recover. No, it, 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 listen, it's not, it's not um, melodrama to say that our democracy um, is at risk and, and will suffer serious repercussions if accountability does not take place. With regard to Alvin Bragg, I... I have to tell you, again, DOJ is not, I don't want a DOJ that makes public pronouncements about their investigation. That's horrible. They did but, it to me. Why not? But, why not? <laughs> they did it to me. As far as I'm concerned, if they could do it to me for paying to have the president's pecker, his mushroom pecker pulled by a porn star, they should definitely be doing it for a guy who tried to overturn a valid so, election and to overthrow the government. I, well, uh, I, just because they did it to you doesn't mean it's Right. Right. They, 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 there should be there should be no public pronouncements about grand juries, pending investigations and all of that. And, and it's wrong if they did it for you and it's wrong for, for the other folks. But with regard to the Alvin Bragg dropping the ball, I'm, I agree with you. I think he did. And I think this is window dressing right now that he's trying to recover from recover. But I, I would have hoped that DOJ would have looked at that and looked at two prosecutors uh, resigning at the DA's office and would have said, okay, okay, you know what? Those are state of New York tax issues. We're that, that, that there's federal tax issues. If you've got state tax issues, you almost definitely have federal tax issues. If you're committing fraud on state taxes, you've probably filed it even worse and more fraudulently with the feds because more money's involved potentially. So I would have hoped DOJ said, we got, we got this while you guys are firing and walking away and resigning each from it, we we got it federally. You 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 don't worry about us. We got the tax case. I, I that's what bothers me about this is there's been no sign that they've taken the tax case. Well, that they haven't plus others. But you know, uh, as the hour is now winding down, I have one last question for you, Frank. You know, you recently yeah. called the cooperation of Stop the Steals, Ali Alexander with the January 6th committee 
you called it a major development. You know, what is it that you think Ali Alexander knows and that could potentially tell the committee that would advance the case and ultimately lead to what we were just talking about, this potential criminal referral um, for Trump and others that are involved? And I say this simply because, listen, Ali Alexander is one of over 750. I think it's now closer to 800 people who have been um, deposed uh, and have given testimony to the January 6th committee. I mean, you're talking about over 4,800 hours of testimony. I'm curious in your, your opinion, what could Ali Alexander tell that has not already been told by other people at least a half a dozen times? Well, okay. So, you know, we're not privy to everybody's testimony. And my comment about Ali Alexander, let's, let's be sure here, is that if he cooperates, right? So it's a major development, but let me, let me explain. If indeed he's truthful and he's going to go cooperate truthfully and completely, but he's doing it, Michael, for a federal grand jury, not a select committee. And there's a big difference there. He's he's facing criminal charges. They're going to jam him up, is my, is my impression here. And he's got, he's got, uh, and I understand when you're dealing with a prosecutor, you know this very well, FBI agents, um, not good to lie to the FBI and prosecutors, in fact, federally chargeable, not good to lie and commit perjury at a federal grand jury. He's he's between a rock and a hard place. Who who can he report on? I, I think some of the highest levels of organization. I think he knows the names. I think he knows who knew what, when, where money was coming from. Um, and yes, he's one of many, but to see this happening at a federal grand jury level, I think adds extra gravity to this beyond the select committee. Good. And let's get this thing moving. So, Frank, let me say thank you again for your insight. Thank you for joining me again on Maya Culpa. Stay safe, my friend. And um, I hope to I hope to speak to you and to see you soon. Yeah, I, well, someday I'll be in New York uh, and we can we can discuss this in person. Thanks for having be me. Be well, Frank. Thank you. And now for today's mea culpa. In this election year, crime and punishment will once again be front and center. Only for some on the far right, the answer is not more police, but more guns. Call it a Rittenhouse effect. A beleaguered citizenry believes that civil society is breaking apart. We can no longer depend on the police or institutions to protect us from violent crime. In the eyes of these vigilantes, the police are the enemy. The state is the enemy. The only answer is to arm yourselves, shoot first, and ask questions later. This is a frightening prospect. More guns are a recipe for more death. In 2020, violent crimes rose 27%, and last year, that number was even larger. Those murders resulted in the deaths of thousands more Americans and returned the U.S. to homicide rates not seen since the mid-1990s. The GOP will argue that this is precisely the reason why people need to arm themselves, but that ignores the hard data that shows more guns equals more violence. It's just plain as fucking day. But we are hamstrung by reverence to a Second Amendment written hundreds of years ago as if it's absolute. 
I support the right for people to own firearms. Fuck, I used to own handguns, and I had a certain license that authorized me to carry here in the city and state of New York. But the idea that people should have unlimited, unfettered access to a vast arsenal in the face of rising violence is just fucking asinine. We are the only country in the world with this problem. Now, we need the will to solve this issue once and for all. The tyranny of the NRA's gun absolutism threatens all of us. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. Oh.